Welcome along to In Focus. I'm Marcus Stead, and my guest today is veteran journalist, broadcaster, and media trainer Graham Miller. Graham is perhaps best known as the face of Saturday night sports bulletins on the ITN News in the 1990s and early 2000s, but there's a lot more to him than that. He began his career on hospital radio, worked on BBC Radio in Birmingham and London, spent years in regional ITV, first at Anglia, then at HTV West, followed by a long spell on Thames News. And since leaving ITN, Graham has appeared as a sports newsreader on Sky News and as a reporter on Gillette Soccer Saturday, but his main focus nowadays is on his public relations and media training company. This promises to be a very interesting discussion. Well, Graham, thank you very much indeed for joining me today. I want to go back to the very beginnings of your career, first of all. And you began with Hospital Radio, I believe, the Hospital Relay Group, uh, which broadcast to patients in Harpenden, Luton and Welling Garden City. What was your inspiration for getting involved in that? Was sports journalism something that always inspired you as a young man? Journalism always inspired me. I don't know where it came from because there's no, there are no journalistic links at all in my family. I come from a family of medics. I was the black sheep of the family because I didn't go into medicine. In fact, my eldest son is a doctor. Um, but I always say I, I would have been a doctor, but I didn't have the patience, you know. Mm. But uh, <laughs> That's an old joke. Yeah, I know. Well, I'm full of those. But uh, it was it was it was lucky actually because as a kid, you you know this. I mean, we, we all know this. We, you're never quite sure what you want to do and this, that, and the other. But from a very young age, I wanted to be a journalist. I, I can't give you a reason why. I I just did, and that was always my my focus. And I was always writing to the local papers and, and this, that, and the other. I I fancied broadcasting as well. And and there was there was an advert in the paper um, that the local hospital radio was looking for volunteers. I think actually they're looking for volunteers to raise money, you know, just to mm. keep the, keep the station going. But I went along and I think I talked myself into uh, a, a disc jockey hour or whatever it was. Mm. And, and it went on from there. And I was there for a couple of years, I think, but it was great fun because um, you were completely on your own, literally. And I did Saturday afternoons from, Oh gosh, about two o'clock till six o'clock. So, goodness knows how many listeners were still listening when I finished, but it was. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, from my point of view, it was a great learning ground and I loved every second. It was, it was great fun. Yeah, I, I was just yeah, very fortunate. And was there anyone in particular during that era who sort of trained you and kept an eye on you and helped you develop? No, um, I've again, th throughout my career, um, I've had very little training, which some people will not be surprised about. <laughs> I've just sort of learned on the job as we go. Um, you make a mistake, you try and make sure you don't make that mistake again. Mm. Uh, that that type of thing. And I, I just was a very canny and, and careful watcher and listener of the pros. You know, how do they do it? And I thought to myself, well, would I do it that way in their circumstance? What would I say? What would I do? And I just learned by listening and watching as best mm. I could. And then when it, when it was my turn, fingers crossed I, I, I hope for the best and uh, yeah that, that's that's the way I did I had some people I looked up to I remember in my uh, in my early days I think Michael Aspel was was a big hero of mine I thought well he, he would have been on Capital at the time wouldn't he when it came to radio just before no he was a, he was a newsreader on um, on BBC and of course he did Crackerjack which is before uh, your time yeah yeah <laughs> that's before your time I'm familiar and, with and it, he yeah. was 
and he and he did uh, he, he was the host on Miss World when that was allowed I'm probably not even allowed to say Miss World anymore but, but he, he hosted that for many years and I thought that's, that's a great job I thought that's a great job so mm. I, I watched him and followed him quite a lot and um, yeah he, uh, he was he was one of my early heroes for sure well yeah because Michael Aspel began his career I think here in Cardiff where I live and um he was, I think, in the very early days of BBC television, they had InVision announcers in those days on the BBC, mm. though it was got rid of in the 1960s. And that was mm. Michael Aspel's way in. And as you say, he went on to um, hosting beauty pageants, um, news reading in his early days as well. Mm. I mainly associate him with This Is Your Life, which he presented well yes. into the 1990s. And, yes. um, but in terms of radio, it was the early days of Capital Radio, I think, where he really made a name for himself when Richard Attenborough was running Capital Radio. That's yes. how he came through. So he was very much an inspiration for you then. But on to 1973, BBC Radio <laughs> Birmingham came calling and you were a reporter right. there. Uh, who were some of your colleagues around that time? Well, I was, again, I, I was a student at uh, the City of Birmingham University. I think they now call themselves Aston University. Mm. And um, I was a very poor student. Was, uh, and I, I was very fortunate in that. How many times have I said that already? But Pebble Mill had just opened up. You remember Pebble, Pebble Mill? Yeah. Big, big, yeah. centre in Birmingham. And local radio Birmingham had just started. They were desperate. They were looking for anybody who had time on their hands. Uh, didn't mind they weren't going to get paid, um, mm. you know, come along and, and help us out. So I thought, hello, that's, that, that sounds like me. So I went over there and I just started doing anything and everything. And I ended up being a, a, a reporter with my Ewer tape recorder, which was a great learning curve. And I, in fact, <laughs> I took time off um, uh, my shifts at Radio Birmingham to take my finals <laughs> after three years. <laughs> Mm. Uh, that gives you an idea of how things were. But at the time, there was Barney Bamford, I remember. He, he was the sort of BBC's man in Birmingham, big name at the time. Yeah. And um, Pebble Mill at One had just started. I can't remember the chap's name who, who did it. Um, like Bob Langford, would it be? Well, Bob came up a little bit after, afterwards, but, mm. um, but that kind of era. And again, I, I spent a lot of time just watching and, and learning how they did it because... You know, nobody uh, nobody said, um, you know, do it this way or don't do it that way. So I just thought, well, I better watch the good guys and see what they do. But uh, that was, a, again, a very great experience because um, they, they were very good to me. They just gave me a tape recorder and said, right, off you go. And it was the time of the, um, the Birmingham bombings, you may recall. And I was reporting on this. And um, because I was freelance, I was paid by Radio Birmingham to do a shift, but I was also able to sell my reports to the World Service, to other broadcasters, and believe it or not, I was, able, I was absolutely, actually able to buy a car on the proceeds of my uh, reports around the Agreed. time of the Birmingham. So uh, it, it's an ill wind and all that. But you know, they were, uh, I look back and I think, how on earth did they let me out? But they did. They did. But, and, uh, but that era, I mean, I, I speak to people of your generation and there's a theme that comes up when, when I'm in conversation with people who are in TV and radio in that era. There was a great deal of freedom to do your own thing and learn and have a lot of fun along the way while you were learning in a way that perhaps is not so easy to do nowadays. But I think about um, radio in the West Midlands in the 1970s and my boss at Snooker Scene magazine, where I work extensively, Clive Everton. His first mm. break in um, radio came at BBC Radio Birmingham round about that time. Now, Clive is, what, 13, 14 years older than you are. Um, mm. And he, Clive's, what, 82 now, and um, he still works full time. And he said that 
well, he was, he was well established as a print journalist by that stage, but Radio Birmingham was a way in for him in broadcast. And what he used to do is on a Saturday afternoon, he would alternate going to Walsall matches. I mean, Clive's a big West Brom fan, but he would mm. alternate covering Walsall matches. He would do one week and his young understudy, a chap called Jim Rosenthal, would do the other week. <laughs> And it, yes. it, would, it would alternate in that way. And that was Clive's way into broadcasting. And from there, mm. he eventually achieved his ambition of uh, becoming a snooker commentator. The story of his first audition, getting an audition with Thames Television, that was another story. Um, <laughs> that's, that's a comical story, actually. But I'll save that for another time. But radio in the West Midlands in that era, in terms of sport, this was the 1970s. You had, obviously, you had strong people at the BBC. But in the commercial sector as well, you had the start of BRMB and... This was when Tony Butler was starting out as well. Tony mm. Butler had, had effectively brought sports phone in radio over from, I think he experienced, he, he traveled around Canada and listened to how they did it. And Tony broke the mold in many ways because then years later, probably a bit, bit while after you left, the likes of Tom Ross and George Gavin all came through and all became mm. legends of West Midlands radio. But the West Midlands in the 70s would have been a very good place to learn your trade, I imagine. Well, it was. Um, Tony, I remember, um, I, I, I think I'd left and moved on to television when he actually became this sort of iconic figure in, in, in radio. I remember him as a, as a sub in the newsroom at, at BBC West for television. He was a, a new sub who was interested in sport because he used to come over and, and we'd have a chat. Uh, but Jim, Jim Rosenthal, he was my landlord. I, I shared, I shared. Really? I, yeah, you know, he owned a house and he couldn't mm. pay for it, of course. So I, I became a tenant. And Jim and I have, have well, we're friends for 40 odd years. And, and what was interesting at the time, because uh, I'm a big Luton Town fan, I mean, when I was working full time, I'd ne never let anybody know which football team I supported. It, it sort of changed now, but I, I didn't think it was right and proper. But I'm a big Luton Town fan. Yeah. And on the Birmingham Post at the time was a young reporter called Nick Owen. And mm. to find two Luton Town fans in the middle of Birmingham was quite something. And then well, he became he left, chairman, didn't he? He did. He, he left the paper and joined uh, BBC Radio uh, Birmingham as well. Mm. So two Luton Town fans on one staff in the in the West Midlands was was quite astonishing. But yeah, a, a, an amazing lineup when you look back. Well, yeah, I mean Jim Rosenthal. He was he started off working for Clive at Snooker Scene in the very mm. early years of Snooker Scene, and then Clive, a little bit too ambitiously, it turned out, tried to set up Hockey Scene magazine, and he effectively made Jim the editor of that. And um, Hockey Scene didn't work as well as Snooker Scene did. It ended up sucking out every penny Snooker Scene ever made. But uh, mm. that wasn't Jim's fault by any means. And of course, Jim ended up achieving his ambition, starting in. Uh, local radio in the West Midlands, then on to LWT, and then, well, to this day, he remains one of the very best at um, anchoring live sports coverage, I think. But uh, so, so living with Jim, that must have been good fun, though. It was, yes. I, I can't, I'm not prepared to talk about some. <laughs> the, re the reason I say this, Graham, is that there is footage yes. on, there's footage on YouTube, right, of oh, the right. 1983 LWT Christmas tape. Now, oh, you yeah. will remember Christmas tapes from... I certainly do. Yeah, and, and there's no way you could have imagined in those days that the internet would eventually exist and these tapes could mysteriously emerge. But there, I, I don't want to uh, upset people who might be eating while they're listening to this, but um, there's footage of Jim um, on, a, on a trip filming in Italy and there's outtakes of him and um, Ted Ailing, who ended up becoming a very senior person in the Olympic Broadcasting Service. And mm. Jim is having a shower and Ted decides to break into his room and go into the shower room and we, we get to see a bit, bit, bit more of Jim than we might like to see. Yeah, you get my yeah, yes, indeed. No, I've seen it. It's, it's a hoot. And uh, that gives you a good inkling, a good idea of the sort of things that we did get up to. Um, um, 
but with a laugh and a lot of fun and, and yeah, great, great times. Ted yeah. Ayling is a great director and I'm a great, great director. Yeah, it's, it's a fun video. Just, just look up, if, if those of you have got the inclination to do it, the 1983 LWT Christmas tape, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, but you, you'll see people, familiar faces, whether it's Jim, Dickie Davis, Ian St. John, and the guys who've never seen them before. It's, it's, it's quite something. It was intended as a joke between the ITV regions. They would send each other these outtakes just to have a laugh at Christmas. And most of the ITV regions were in on it, but this, this is quite something to watch. It really is. So you, you, you were at local radio in the West Midlands, and a year later, 1974, you moved to BBC Radio London. Again, that would have been, I imagine, quite a dynamic place to work. Lots of, I guess, in people who went on to big things were around at that time as well. Yes, it was quite an interesting leap. I mean, that was a, a staff job. I was freelance at Radio Birmingham, and then suddenly I got this staff job at Radio London. I initially went down to be sports editor, um, but before I started on my first day, they had re-employed the sports editor who walked out in a, in a huff, uh, and so my job was no longer to be sports editor. It was, was to be um, one of the news reporters, which, which was fine. I was quite happy to do that, uh, and I was able to cover a lot of sport in London because there was so much. Uh, but the one thing I have a striking memory, because having worked at Radio Birmingham, I was spoiled rotten because all the kit was brand new. Brand new mm. uh, tape recorders, brand new microphones. The studios were sparkling and state-of-the-art. I went down to Radio London, and it seemed that BBC Radio London had had all the cast-offs from National Radio, <laughs> BBC Network Radio. Mm. And I remember reading the news, um, and I'm sure the last person to have used this might, must have been Alvar Liddell during the Second World War. I mean, it was, one that, it was that classic, you know, with the BBC written on the middle of and this huge microphone. But the, the oddest thing of all, again, when I look back, I mean, you've opened up memories here. Um, it, it, everything downstairs, as it were, was, was sort of up to date as it could be. And we followed, everything was up to the second. But also at that time, there was a thing called a VHF opt-out. Right. Radio London was sort of medium wave, but VHF covered the whole of the southeast of England mm. from, you know, right down from Cornwall up and up to sort of Norwich. You know, it was huge, huge area. Mm. And it was BBC Radio London's job to cover that area with a sort of 10 minute news wrap um, twice a day. And if you did the early shift, which I did, you had to do it at nine o'clock. But this was done from a studio upstairs. And I put studio in inverted commas because it was just a broom cupboard literally was a broom cupboard and there was a there was a microphone and and uh, some machinery that you had to switch yourself on and off and the clock it wasn't even quartz it was an ordinary clock and you you just sort of hope for the best you're on time and the audience must have been massive and yet the resources that we had to do that compared to Radio London which was much a much smaller audience was was remarkable um, and people used to you know people would hear my voice and say oh yes we hear you on on you know, radio uh, VHF, BBC VHF, an extra extraordinary misuse of uh, resources, I would say. But again, an amazing learning experience when you're all on your own. It's up to you to switch yourself on, get yourself out. Uh, there was no way of hearing what was happening before. You just had to hope for the best. But uh, uh, I've forgotten all about that. You've, you've opened up memories here, Marcus. So were you there mainly at BBC Radio London on news rather than sport at that time? Yes, it was mainly news. A, a chap called um, oh, um, uh, Norman de Mosquita, that was his name. Oh, I'll tell you a story about him in a minute. Carry on. Uh, he ran the sports desk and I think he walked out, but then, as I say, came back again. And he loved his cricket and he loved, there were other sports that were his sports. So mm. he wouldn't let anybody in. And he, he also wrote for the Times as well. He was a 
you know, very experienced and, and well-established journalist when I got there. So I was mainly doing news. And what happened was one early morning, I was on the very early shift, and um, I noticed on the news wires, it used to come through, chug, 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 um, that there'd been an incident at uh, Moorgate tube station. Mm. So this was my patch. I thought, well, I better go and find out what's, what's going on. So I got on the tube, got to Moorgate tube station, got down to the platform, and lo and behold, I witnessed the most extraordinary thing. Um, this tube train literally was like a concertina smashed right into the tunnel. Oh. And you may not remember, but the, in the end, I think over around 75, 80 people were killed in the Moorgate tube crash. Mm. And I was right down on the platform and there was soot coming off the ceiling because of uh, the roof, because, you know, in the olden days, the tubes were run by steam trains. And so it, it had hit it so hard. This soot was coming down from goodness knows how many years before. Um, and eventually they saw I was there and they threw me out. I've been thrown out of lots of places since. But during that morning, the death rate was extraordinary. It was sort of five dead, 10 dead, 15 dead. And, I, and here's the thing, actually. I, I, I rang, because I was local radio, I rang the BBC uh, Radio 4 news desk and said, look, I'm at Moorgate tube station and I'm witnessing this for myself. There are a number of people killed here. I think you should know about it. And the duty officer or the, you know, whoever was running the desk at the time, news editor, I don't know. He said to me, well, I can't see anything on PA, which is the Press Association Newswire. I can't see anything on the, on the Newswire at all. Therefore, well, I'm not really interested. I said, but, and I tried to explain that I also was a BBC staff reporter and I'm mm -hmm. telling you what I'm seeing and I'm telling you what the police are reporting. But he wouldn't have it because it wasn't on the Newswire. So I learned a lesson that day and I thought if I was going to do this job properly of actually telling the news to people, I need to be somewhere where the organisation is respected. I mean, it, is, it has changed now. Let's be fair, it's changed mm. now. But mm. I was horrified. I was horrified by this barrier. And um, I moved from there to television um, as a result of that. And it was an extraordinarily awful event. I mean, it really was. And the next day, when I saw the story in the papers, obviously it made the papers the next day, the Saturday, and I was physically sick. You know, it's, it's one of those things where at the time, and journalists will understand this, it, you, you, you switched on. It's, it's, it's a great story, terrible human, mm. you know, for, well, well I, I, I've read new, numerous accounts of that. Obviously, it was well before my time, but the people mm. who witnessed it and the survivors were obviously greatly disturbed by what happened. And I think the, mm. the most harrowing account I read of someone who was stood on a tube platform, they said they looked at the driver and the driver seemed completely focused and not in any panic at all. The driver was just driving as though this was a normal mm. journey. Yeah. The, the, the whole thing, I know it, it greatly disturbed a huge number of people. And, and you're right... To this day, they don't, you know, there was no reason for it. They, they've mm. never really established why he did it or whether it's his fault or whether it was mechanical. We don't know. We don't yeah, know. It's, it's, it was a very, very strange thing. You know, those accounts I read of people just saying, no, oh, the driver just looked like a normal tube driver, sat in his seat, didn't seem panicked at all. Mm. And it, it led to this horrendous tragedy. But uh, you are right about journalism. Sometimes you've got to have sharp elbows and make the point, look, I've got a good story here for crying out loud, listen to me. I've been yeah, in that yeah. position myself. And I, I learned quite early in my career, you know, do be a little bit pushy sometimes if you know you're onto something. But, you, you know, things have changed. But I'm going back. I'm glad you mentioned Norman the Mosquito. I think, um, knowing what I know about him, his two big sports really were cricket and ice hockey. I think yes. that is to, to a very large extent where his expertise lies. But 
the, the reason I'm so familiar with that name, he died, what, maybe five years ago, but um, he, he, was well, he was well known in the snooker fraternity because for many, many years, the Benson Hedges Masters, which used to be held at the uh, Wembley Conference Centre, it was independently run of the WPBSA, the game's governing body, and as such, they had their own staff doing work there. And Norman was the, um, the, the announcer, the MC at the Benson Hedges Masters for many years, and he was a very popular man in the press room. Again, I never got to cover it by the time um, I got involved in journalism. It, it was obviously no longer the Benson Hedges Masters by then because mm. tobacco sponsorship had been banned and the WPBSA had taken over the tournament anyway. But yeah, Norman was a very popular man in the uh, snooker press rooms. Um, Clive Everton knew him very well. And he, he was just one of those people, you know, cricket and ice hockey were his specialities. But um, yeah, he, he had a sound knowledge of most sports, I gather. Yes, indeed. And uh, he actually was one of those people who did um, help me out actually he sort of commented on one or two things I did and and again it reminded me during my uh, second year at uh, university college call it what you will um, I got myself seconded to BBC Radio 2 sports desk it was on Radio 2 in those desks in those days and I was this sort of gopher I did a little bit of this a little bit of that and I persuaded them to let me on air they they let me do the um the 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 racing results. I read the racing results, which were fantastic. You know, big, big breakthrough for me. Um, but then the great Brian Butler was there. Now Brian was um, football correspondent and also an expert on cricket, um, and never pushed himself at all. I mean, he he was a great broadcaster. And I was reading a bulletin one day, and I didn't say anything. And and he he always smoked a pipe, always had a shirt and tie on. And he came over to me, sat down next to me, puffing his pipe, and he said to me, um. What about emphasis? Is it perhaps if you'd have said, if emphasized that word or, or that word or said it perhaps slightly this way, how do you think it would have sounded? And of course, he was absolutely right, 100% right. And I, again, he opened up a memory. He, he, you know, he took it upon himself to advise and help me. And I'm very grateful to him for that because he, he was a big star, a big name in, in those days. And he, he, didn't, he didn't have to do that, but he wanted to help. And obviously, clearly had been helping you know other reporters journalists broadcasters over the years and that, that was that was very good that was in the era of peter jones as well peter jones yeah i was, was going to i was going to mention him. this was peter jones brian butler and sport on two as well because obviously yeah. that only really changed when the original radio five launched in the early 1990s prior to that it was very much sport on two and things mm. like you know the fa cup draw took place on the jimmy young yes. show and yes. on, if there was a big race meeting going on in the afternoon, they would break out of David Hamilton or whoever's presenting the afternoon show, Radio 2 goes racing sort of thing. And I always yes. remember there was a story I read about Peter Jones. I mean, obviously he died in 1990, so I can't really remember him. But I think he died covering the boat race, didn't he, in, in 1990? I think that he was, did, yes. Yeah, that, that, did, was, yeah. that was the story. But the story about Peter Jones was that the bosses above him at BBC Network Radio were not always keen on um, opting out of the normal evening programmes on Radio 2 to cover live, particularly European matches. And they used to say about Peter Jones, that man could charm the knickers off a nun. And <laughs> that, that was the saying. And, and he always yeah. persuaded the bosses to at least let them cover the second half in full on the radio. Yes. Yes. Um, uh, and he, he just had uh, this, this sort of charming thing. But Peter Jones, I mean, Brian Butler, Peter Jones, Peter Jones's talents went well beyond sports commentary. Uh, he, he was the, the radio foreman for, you know, the big royal occasions and stuff like that and serious funerals. And he always said, Absolutely. yeah, he always yeah. said that his favorite thing to cover, it was an odd one and it's not covered on the radio anymore. He said his favorite 
event of each year was the Royal Monday on Monday mm. Thursday every year, yeah. which they used to cover on radio and the Queen would hand out the Monday money. Well, the service continues. It's just not on the radio anymore. But um, Peter Jones said of all the things he covered, that was his favourite. But it goes to show that in those days, perhaps people specialise a bit more nowadays, but in those days yeah. you had to have a breadth of abilities, didn't you, to, to really get on? Well, he was a, a tremendous wordsmith and he was a protégé of Angus Mackay. Now, Angus Mackay was the, the father of uh, radio sport and a lot of what still goes on was invented by Angus Mackay. And during my secondment, um, uh, you know, when I was a student, Angus Mackay had a retiring party. Now, uh, he started the, uh, the routine of reading the scores off the teleprinter. You know, he did this on, on Sports Report years before television picked it up. And he would give reporters 60 seconds and if they got if they came in at 59 seconds or one minute one second he would give them a hell of a talking to the next day I and mean, he was a scottish very strict and, and so on but ran a ran a really striking ship mm. and then during my time he retired and in the uh, opposite um, bbc broadcasting house which is another hotel it used to be <laughs> that's my phone you're popular be... graham you're popular <laughs> hang on used to be the BBC club mm. and in the BBC club they had a retirement party for Angus Mackay and every single name you could think of for throughout the history of BBC radio sport up until that time so you're talking sort of 30 40 years of fantastic sport all the names were there under one roof mm. now there was our young reporter bored silly of course George Bernard Shaw said youth is wasted on the young what an opportunity missed yeah <laughs> I could have I could have interviewed every one of them, and there was masses of stories, in, you know, to have to have to have been recorded for posterity. But of course, I didn't because I was a young uh, whippersnapper reporter. But I look back, what a wasted opportunity! Well, well, just just to be in the same room as them and to say hi to yeah. them, you know. It, it's... But he he picked up Peter Jones. I mean, Peter Jones was a school teacher, and I don't, I can't, I can't tell you how they got together. But Angus Mackay said oh, in a very broad Scottish accent, "You've got to come and work for me at the BBC," and, and that was it. That was it. He, he turned himself into you know, one of the best broadcasters of all time. Yeah, he, he was one of the greats, certainly. And it must have been wonderful just to be around those people in that era. is quite something. But you didn't stay in radio for that long because I believe it wasn't that long after that that Anglia Television came calling. Was it Anglia or HTV West you went to first? No, it was Anglia. I went to Anglia in Norwich mm. um, where I did a bit, again, I did a bit of everything, which was great learning experience. You mentioned earlier Envision Continuity Announcing. That was one of my roles. Um, <laughs> You know, and, and of course, you had no idea how much time you were going to get between programs. You had to talk um, sensibly for 40 seconds leading into, I don't know, something like uh, the Sweeney or whatever. Um, and when you hit, you had to link over to news at 10, you had to come out on the double O on the clock or, or there'd be real trouble. But in vision continuity in those days was quite something. We had to wear a bow tie on a Saturday night and all, all sorts of things. But you learned, you learned very quickly how, how long 20 seconds really is. People say, oh, I'll be just a minute. They've got no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> a minute is a long time. You can get a lot of information in, in, in a minute and I also uh, did a little bit of reporting but also presenting about Anglia um, which that was the main was, evening news program at the time yeah, wasn't it was marvelous I was I was I don't know 23 24 when I was fronting this major news program for the whole region and in those days it covered both west and east it, mm. it was a, a big opportunity for me no no autocue of course it was all <laughs> a bit of script and memory and, uh, and so you were reading managed. the news without an autocue yeah, yeah, yeah. I could spend the next three hours telling you stories about how badly that went. Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you something about that. Bob Warman, who still works on oh, yes. Central, 
To this yeah. day, he keeps a copy of the Birmingham Evening Mail under his desk, yes. just yes. in case autocue goes down and everything yes. else goes down. Um, now, nothing like that has happened for many, many years, and it's highly unlikely to happen these days. But Bob, even at his age now, takes no chances whatsoever. I did exactly the same, and that's something I recommend to everybody who you know contacts me or writes to me and say, "What help can you give us?" And that's one of the first things I say: if you're doing a live program, for goodness sake, take scripts in. You know, don't leave yourself like a, the, the proverbial rabbit in the headlight. Just take something with you to fill the gap. Uh, well, I, I'm glad you mentioned Invis and continuity because you've brought back a memory there, Graham. And um, again, I, I, re I remember. Envision continuity on HTV West and HTV Wales because I lived in Cardiff. Well, I still do mm. live in Cardiff. I, I left for, for some years, but I came back. And HTV West, a lot of people's aerials were pointing to the, uh, the Mendip transmitter rather than to the Wenbo transmitter in yes. Cardiff for reasons yes. you know about. And yes. so, but we had both in our house. And I remember the Envision announcers, but I, I was looking up some old footage on YouTube recently of um, Tom Edwards at um, Thames. Oh, yes. And oh, yes. yeah, Tom, yes. was, Tom was the master at filling when things really went down and a, yeah. a program would go down and tapes would break, which is quite common in those days. And there's some great footage on YouTube of him not knowing how long it's going to be before the program's up and running again. And he's got his copy of the TV times and he's going through each program that's on the following evening, but he's stretching out each sentence to last as long as he can by putting in all these little, these little clauses, mid sentence sort of thing. And Tom filled it, he's an absolute master at this sort of thing. But th that, that's how television was in those days. You know, you've got to be like a swan, so to speak, looking calm and, and authoritative on screen, but your legs are paddling underneath, so to speak. So Absolutely right. I, I, I'm and guessing was, you had a few situations like that uh, as well. Many, many, many times like that. You know, uh, tapes would always crash or go down or something went, went wrong. Um, and I had lots of, you, you mentioned the ITV Sport on a Saturday afternoon. We had a VT80 VT machine it was that was supposed to, um, transcribe the football results onto screen that was forever breaking down and I, I was feeling desperately for, for most of my most of my time there um, but also um, when you're covering sport for the main bulletins when I was at ITN news at 10 news at 540 or 545 and so on so on so on because you were the sportsman you were the end of the program so you were the buffer you know, if, if other items had overrun, you had to shorten your piece. Or if other items above you had, uh, had, had not gone to time, then you had to extend your piece to camera in order to fill a gap. So perhaps well, it was tremendous training to, for that. Yeah, well, well, to me, that's what I primarily associate you with, because I was born in 1983, and certainly around about post-1993 onwards, towards the end of the decade, you were the sort of face of Saturday tea times on ITN. Mm. But there was a lot of things happened before then. So you started at Anglia. Am I right in saying Jerry Harrison would have been on sport around then? Yeah, Jerry Harrison was the sort of Roger Malone of the uh, of, of 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 East Anglia. He did um, uh, f football for them for for years and years and years, and he's well into his eighties now, and he's still working. He still loves his football, and he's still mm. he's still working for FIFA Television, I think. Um, but he he was very good, um, you know, knew knew the players inside out, and was a very good operator. I worked, I worked alongside him uh, several times, and mm. yeah, got a lot of time for Jerry. Yeah, yeah, because he, he started out, there was a competition on Match of the Day in the late 60s, wasn't there? Find a commentator. And I think Jerry was runner-up in that. He lost to a guy called Edward Robling, who was a Welsh fella, mm, who uh, right. went, went on to enjoy a, a career mainly at BBC Wales. But uh, Jerry Harrison came second. I think Ian St. John came third. Of course, Ian St. John was already a household name because of his playing yes. career, but he went on to have a good career as a broadcaster as well. But yeah, Jerry Harrison had a long career at Ang Anglia, also at ITV Network. And uh, in the years, particularly from the Premier League era onwards, commentating and 
administrating um, broadcasts for worldwide English language audiences. So mm. yeah, Jerry is still very, very active. I'm aware of that, certainly. So you started at Anglia then, and then what my late father particularly remembers you from, HTV West came calling. And I imagine this, is, this was a great year because you had people like Bruce Hawkin working there who had the longest career, I think, of any regional newsreader. Uh, he was there from the 60s. I think he started at TWW, HTV's predecessor. So he was seen in both Wales and the West. But for me, when I was a kid, he was the face of HTV West News. You also had people like Richard Wyatt working there at that time. Saying that there was no intention of evading the code then? Oh, absolutely none, absolutely none problems of the PACO. Mr. Glyn England, the recently appointed chairman of the Central Electricity Board, is at present on a tour of the nuclear power stations along the Bristol Channel, the biggest nuclear power concentration in Europe. Well, he was at Barclay yesterday and Albury on 7 today. He said that there have been discussions with three more nuclear power stations at Portbury near Portishead, Port Skewart near Caldicott and another one at Albury itself. The new chairman toured the Olbryon 7 nuclear power station today after giving a progress report on the industry. He said he wanted to step up the development of nuclear power stations and with the three sites mentioned, the West is likely to continue to have more stations than any other region in Europe. For people living near the present nuclear sites are constantly expressing their fears. So I asked the chairman... Just how safe are they? Our own experience, and that's now very considerable, is that they are very safe. Uh, we've been running reactors for 15 years. In total, our experience is equivalent to uh, one reactor running for 180 years. And I'm advised that in the whole of that time, uh, there's been no harm attributable to radiation to any of our workers or to any of our neighbours. You say the progress of power stations is good and also that they are very safe. Are there any plans to build any more? Uh, not just at the moment because uh, currently we have sufficient electricity generating plant to meet the demands of customers now and for the next few years. But fairly soon we shall be wanting to progress to place more orders for power stations of various sorts including nuclear stations. Here in the Bristol Channel we have one of the highest uh, conglomeration of nuclear stations in Europe. Is, is the Bristol Channel again in your sights? Yes, the Bristol Channel has made a very significant contribution to the development of nuclear power and there are some other sites which have been discussed in public which could be developed at some time for further nuclear stations. There's a great website that exists on the internet, um, the history of regional football on ITV and it's, it's one for the anoraks but it's great fun and it goes through it season by season which regions showed which matches on whichever Sunday afternoon. And, of course, in the West and in Wales, HTV, we didn't have our own regular programme every week, but there were occasional opt-outs, soccer specials, instead of the big match from LWT. And there's a picture of you, a screenshot of you presenting from about the early 80s. I'm guessing it was from one of the Bristol grounds. That must have been good fun to work on in that era. It was remarkable um, because you were so alone covering those matches as uh, as a broadcaster and it's so different from today. Um, it was recorded onto videotape and when there was an incident like a penalty or indeed a goal, what happened was, um, you know, Smith would pass to Jones and Jones would score. Uh, you had to remember the process. You had to remember the sequence of events that led up to the goal or led up to the uh, penalty. And the game would carry on, of course, as it would, and the recording carried on as it would. And then over that, over those pictures, you had to then 
re-commentate from your memory mm. what led up to the goal. And you, you never knew if you were right or not. You, you didn't have an opportunity. And then mm. at the end of the match, um, you do other reports and interviews. And it was sent from Bristol, for example, down to London Weekend Television, who had the only machinery who could do this. And, and they would turn it round into a programme and then send it back for transmission on Sunday afternoon because HTB didn't have the facility, nor did the other regions come to that. And when it went to air, you just help, you just cross your fingers and hope you've got it re reasonably correct. I mean, nowadays, you know, you see a goal, you see it from five, six, seven, eight, nine different angles and you can commentate over the different angles. So you absolutely bang on as to what happened. Not very sophisticated, you might say, but then again, the audience was less sophisticated. I don't think the audience expected more than more than they got in those days. But uh, well, well happily, these were different times because you you look at I mean they're repeated a lot on BT Sport now and on ITV4 as well. A lot of these old regional Sunday afternoon football programs, the big match from LWT or um, the Granada equivalent called Kickoff, and some of the programs from TVS on the South Coast are shown as well, with Fred Dynage hosting those. They're shown on BT Sport a lot. They say they're occasionally shown on ITV4 as well. And what you realise, and I noticed re looking at that website about regional football on ITV, up at Tyne Tees, for example, their Saturday, Sunday afternoon programme called Shoot was regarded as somewhat primitive by comparison because they just didn't have the resources. But what used to happen there is if World of Sport were covering a, a horse racing meeting from the Tyne Tees region, their one outside broadcast unit would be needed at the racing and therefore, on the Sunday afternoon, they'd have no choice but to take the big match from London because there just wasn't another outside broadcast unit from Tyne Tees to cover football that day. Yeah, so Tyne Tees yeah. viewers was like, why, why is London so more glitzy than us? Well, they just they didn't have the resources, as you say. But Sunday afternoon local football on HTV was a rare treat in those days. It wasn't every week by any means, was it? No, it wasn't. I mean, Bristol City were then in the first division, which is the Premier League now. They had four seasons there, and they, obviously they got relegated in the last of those four. But they had a reasonably good, a good team with some with some great characters, and we used to cover them as often as we could. I remember one particular game against uh, Nottingham Forest, uh, managed by one uh, Brian Clough, and I tried mm. to get my interview with him and of course uh, I don't do interviews young man and all, all that um you know again there's little things like that but tremendous experience because you're, you're in awe of these people you know you're, you're young mm. and they're, they're well established um but yeah from 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 my point of view covering those matches as a as a broadcaster you know literally live and then mm. the edit happened out of your hands it was it was a nervy time just hoping you you, you got it right and occasionally when if you got it wrong there'll be letters in the local paper which is fair enough <laughs> which is fair enough oh, we, we, we all we all get a bit of stick from some <laughs> no matter what it's not much you can do about that i mean i, I always yeah. think back to what the late richard whiteley on countdown used to say what he used to do when he was reading the the local news program on yorkshire television calendar when the nasty letters came in he just pinned them to his dressing room wall and he used it as wallpaper. You know that that was the, that was the way to approach that. I remember but, uh, once asking Peter Jones, uh, saying, "Well, the radio reporter, how do you remember? How do you know the names of the foreign players when English clubs are playing abroad?" And he sort of looked over each shoulder and he, and he whispered to me, "He said, well, who's going to know I'm getting it wrong?'" But of course, <laughs> nowadays, nowadays they do because nowadays we see it, you know, as well as hear it. But so that was that was his way around. It's uh, if he didn't know, perhaps he'd make it up. But well, um, I always remember <laughs> Angus Lochran saying. In the early days of Eurosport, um, maybe in Sky Sports, but I think it was Eurosport, he was commentating on ice hockey for them. And it was, uh, it was a Russian international game, or it may even have been the USSR still at that stage. 
and he was expecting a fax to come through with the name of all the players and information about them. Oh, you are a popular man today, Graham. I am. I should have taken that off. The big game. Okay. <laughs> it's all right. But anyway, he. Um, this fax didn't come through and they were just minutes away from broadcast and he had no information whatsoever about any of these Russian ice hockey players. So the way he went around it was to um, think of the names of five Russian presidents or Soviet presidents <laughs> and he yes. allocated the name to each of the players and he did the commentary pretending they were whoever, Khrushchev, whoever, Stalin, Lenin, you name it. And um, guess what? Not one complaint came in. <laughs> no, yes. Nobody had a clue. But, yeah. uh, you know, different, you would never get away with that now and because no, people no, no. just have so much more, you know, we can find out about, I don't know, the Belarusian League just by typing it into Google and getting all sorts of information yeah. on our fingertips, which just wasn't possible yeah. then. But so HTV West, you, you work with Roger Malone as well. Now, I remember Roger very well because he was working on sport on HTV West well into the 1990s. Uh, what was he like to work with? Well, Roger was a fantastic character, a great journalist. Mm. Um, I don't think he and television ever quite married, got married, got it sorted out because he was around at ITV before the days of Brian Moore. And I think if, if Roger had got his act together a little bit better, mm. uh, he would have been the Brian Moore that we all came to know and love and respect. Uh, Roger would talk a lot. I remember vividly uh, where he was presenting in the studio one particular sports show. I was co-presenting with him. And uh, we had earpieces by then, and we could hear what was going on in the gallery. And he'd, given, he'd been given 20 seconds to talk about some story. And about 50 seconds later, he was still talking. <laughs> and and the, I remember vividly the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the gallery saying to the floor manager, who we still had at the time, saying, throw a brick at him, you know, <laughs> chop off his legs, move him, throw a chair at him. He just wouldn't stop talking. And, and I don't think he ever understood the need of, of um, sticking to time, keeping to the second. Television is all about timing, and so is mm -hmm. radio. I don't mm -hmm. think he ever understood that. I think he, he was a newspaper man through and through, and... Uh, didn't really get the timing situation that you absolutely need to follow in television and radio, but a character, a tremendous character. Yeah, and also you mentioned there Brian Clough. You could never quite tell where things were going if you were even trying to interview him because I always remember Dave Clark, who's just stood down as a Sky's Darts host. Uh, sadly, he's had to take early retirement due to Parkinson's disease. But I always remember him telling a story on, when he was a, a reader on Sky Sports News the day Brian Clough died. I remember Dave Clark was on shift that day in, what, late 2004, I think it was. And Dave said that uh, he went to interview Cluffy um, this was after Cluffy had retired and he went to interview him and not knowing what to expect, you know, I, he'd heard that alcoholism had taken its toll and not knowing. And Dave Clark, they sat down whenever they'd agreed to meet. And uh, Cluffy said to Dave Clark, he said, young man, never wear a cheap tie with an expensive suit. <laughs> and that, that was just his way of unsettling him. But there's a load yeah. of footage just show because Sky Sports are, are raiding the archives during lockdown and they're They've put a load of clips from the early years of the Premier League on their YouTube channel. And uh, Martin Tyler was trying to interview him in the first mm. year of the Premier League, which, of course, was Cluffy's last year with Nottingham Forest. And uh, Tyler asked him a fairly straightforward question, and Nottingham Forest was struggling near the bottom of the league. And Cluffy started to say to him, oh, Martin, how's, that? how's your wife? How are your lovely children at the moment? And I think, well, you know, this is live television, and you're going off yes. on this unbelievable tangent. So you never quite knew what you were getting with Cluffy, did you? That's what made him a lovely character. I mean, his record on the pitch was extraordinary for Sunderland. How many goals did he score in 
you know, mm. 200 goals in, I don't know, 100 goals in 200 matches, whatever it is. You look up his record, it's absolutely phenomenal. But there mm. were great stories about him and he was just as maverick as a player. Apparently he stormed into the, the England selection committee. It was never done by one person in, the, in his time and he couldn't understand why he wasn't in the first 11. He was about 18 at the time. Mm. It, it was just a maverick, but what a great character and a marvellous manager and a terrific footballer. I mean, his career was sadly cut short by a knee injury, which today would have, you know, he'd been up and running again within six weeks, but uh, mm. different and his career was over, but a, a wonderful character. Well, yeah, that, that he tells a story in the last book he wrote about that knee injury. And um, he says that Bob Stokoe, who was the manager of Sunderland when they uh, won the FA Cup, he said that Bob Stokoe was standing over him, accusing him of faking it. And he never <laughs> forgave Stokoe for that. Yeah. And, but yeah. one of the other people who was in, um, in that team, I, I think it was Sunderland against Doncaster, if I remember rightly. Uh, the another person who was in that team, that Doncaster team, was um, Charlie Williams, who later became well-known as a comedian. And yeah, uh, yeah. a television presenter, I think he did the golden shot after, after Bob Monkhouse left the first time. And he was in that Doncaster team. And uh, yeah, Brian Clough's last book where he talks about that. And he does, I can't remember it because I haven't read it for years, but the Sunderland goal scoring record, he mentions it about 10 times, at least once <laughs> per, per chapter. He's, he's repeating well, that again phenomenal. and again, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a phenomenal record and something to be extremely proud of. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But, but, but back to yourself then. So HTV West, that ended, what, 1983-ish, I think you moved on, and Thames News came calling. And you were paired with ex-ITN man Andrew Gardner, weren't you? I did, yes. Uh, I went down as um, sports correspondent to Thames News. Uh, I took over from Steve Ryder, mm. who I think went at BBC at that time. And Mike Morris was my producer. He went on to present TVAM. Oh, he was years. great, wasn't he? He was great he on was. TVAM. Yeah, uh, sadly, no longer with us. No, nor is Andrew, sadly. Um, lovely man and uh, a tremendous broadcaster. And loved, loved the gossip. Oh, he was a... He was a <laughs> <laughs> he was a blotting paper for gossip and he'd readily pass it on and he also liked silly jokes as well so he, he he was great fun and I shared a dressing room with Jack Scott the weatherman now Jack had been BBC weatherman for years and years and years and in retirement Thames brought him over as, as their weatherman and he was a another great <laughs> character and a teller of stories and loved his golf mm. uh, and it was it was a yeah very interesting time when I joined um Thames News had just taken over from the Eamon Andrews show and Eamon Andrews was a big uh, big sort of showbiz man of, of his time uh, did a lot of sport as well for the BBC mm. so we inherited crews from the um, from those days I went out to do a news story which had I don't know 90 seconds in the program and I had a crew of about 12 people mm. <laughs> you know two mm. cameramen two lighting men this that and the other but those I, really were the days yeah absolutely ridiculous <laughs> they, were, they didn't do anything you know 80 percent of the crew did nothing at all and why would they um, well, this is union unionized wasn't it this was the oh, thing yes oh yes oh yeah nothing must you know nothing must be done mm. um so uh, those those were happy days but also you mentioned the union uh, if you went if you covered a fire you know you, you turned up at a fire for example and the house was burning down the crew would still be sitting in the car and you'd have mm. to knock on the window would you mind starting filming now how <laughs> they got and filmed, and filmed it times have changed absolutely times have changed but uh, uh, it was it was very interesting working in and around london because um, you know you got to know a lot of the people who literally ran sport for example quite well mm. and uh, it was also the days of tremendous uh, boxing characters from Frank Bruno to the Dark Destroyer, Lennox Lewis, of course. And I got quite close to each and all of them in, in my mm. time. And 
was a fascinating, fascinating time. Boxing is, is such an extraordinary sport. If you think about it, it should be banned. But nevertheless, I, I know what I know what you mean. And I, you know, that era for British boxing, the late eighties into the early nineties, Nigel Ben, Chris Eubank, oh, Michael Watson. Yeah. It, it was it was a tremendous era. But the, your work at Thames then, right the way for the remainder of the eighties into the early nineteen nineties, you presented in uh, New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety two, the last ever news bulletin on Thames. I did. I took, I, I, took, I was the captain of the ship. I took him down, didn't I? I mean, it was, uh, uh, by that time, Andrew had already retired. I don't think he wanted to take them down. He thought, no, this won't do me any good. So he'd, he'd already retired. And it was, it was left to me to, uh, to do the last ever Thames news programme, which was um, an honour in one way, but very, very sad in another, because a lot of people literally were out of a job, as, as was I. I mean, it was uh, very tough. And because I was front of screen, because I was, you know what they call talent dreadful word uh, i wasn't on the staff i was freelance so i didn't get any of the payoffs that the staff did and neither did any of the other presenters because that wasn't the contract we were obliged to sign so it was a you know very tough time and that's it the final thames news to those who follow good luck from those of us here thanks for your good wishes thanks for watching and goodbye it, it, it would have been because I, I take an interest in I, I've, I've read books on it, actually, the 1991 ITV franchise round. And there's always this thing hanging over was the Death on the Rock documentary that upset Margaret Thatcher part of the factor that led to Thames losing their license. I've never been convinced on that because I think the bidding system was flawed. And Thames having those huge studios and having the production arm meant that they were always likely to be outbid. And I, I gather the consensus among the staff was it was 50-50 whether they would hang on. And they didn't. Um, no, what, what, what was your take on it? Well, I could never understand it because Thames was making money. It's mm. pro for the directors, for the shareholders. And the programmes were being shown all over the world. The Benny Hill show was everywhere, making huge amounts of money. And the Thames name was, uh, uh, was large and we respected. They were making films and everything was done in-house. There were no, no outsourcing. Everything was done under one roof. Uh, and then Carlton, who would literally just uh, name off a shelf, they had nothing. You know, they didn't mm. have any staff. They didn't have any production uh, facilities whatsoever. They literally came in with a higher bid and got the license. Now, there are, as you say, there are all sorts of stories how on earth that, that took place. Maybe Thames didn't take it seriously enough. Maybe they're given the wrong information. Nobody will ever know. Uh, but they lost the license to Carlton, which um, was a apart from the personal side as far as I was concerned and my my colleagues um, you know to lose a production house of that standing of that quality of that worldwide reputation on a piece of paper with numbers on was just ridiculous well, well just, I, I would argue that uh, having read uh, I think Andrew Davidson's book Under the Hammer is probably the best book to read if you want to understand all that went on in the 1991 franchise round the legislation the 1990 Broadcasting Act was fundamentally flawed in all sorts yes. of ways. And th th there, were, there were three things in it. One of them was money. That was the first thing. It was highest bidder. Then there was um, exceptional circumstances. And then there was another thing, sort of, if you bid too high, and they, they said that would compromise your ability to make good programs, which is why I think in the Northwest, that's why Granada held on, because I think there was a consortium with Phil Redmond that bid higher. But they said, the ITC said, if you bid this high, you're not going to have any money left to make programs. So it was flaw It was like a very silly game of poker, if you like, who holds on to their franchise and who doesn't. And it wasn't fair. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it was exceptional, highest bidder, exceptional circumstances. 
Um, and TVAM were hoping to hold on with exceptional circumstances because of their track record in, um, in, the, in the Gulf War reporting. But yeah, that was it was called Quality Threshold. And yes. if you bid too high, you would lose the quality threshold. And the staff at Thames, the ones I've had dealings with, they said, oh, we thought it was 50-50. And was that death on the rock episode of this week part of the factor? Nobody was quite sure, but it was sad to lose because you look at it, whether it's Benny Hill, uh, Des O'Connor tonight, and you know, all, everything, whether it's documentary making, light entertainment, sport, Thames had a reputation for quality. And whilst they continued as an independent production company, for a long time afterwards, and indeed still do in a certain guise. It was a shame to lose that nucleus at Teddington and at Euston Road, wasn't it? Absolutely. And what a waste of talent from all those people I worked with. I mean, many of them just retired. Many of them were never seen again and went into different areas of work and what have you. Just a loss of talent. It, looking back, you think, how on earth could it have happened? I mean, you've described it very well, uh, but they were dark days. It was, uh, it, was a, it was a horrible time, to be honest, mm. a horrible time. Yeah, yeah, and and Carlton, their, their, you mentioned how Carlton worked. Their entire business model was Michael Green was in charge of it. He appointed the head of drama, head of current affairs, and he sent out a tender document to independent production companies. And in fact, all their programs were made by independent production companies in London. Exactly. They, they, they didn't exactly. make any of their own. And Carlton got off to a very bad start, shall we say, in 1993. And it took them quite a while to recover from that. But um, because they were effectively buying in programs from independent production companies, it never had as though you were sort of part of a team that would have existed at Thames, if, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And you're quite right. And that team ethic, that teamwork is worth a lot. You know, it's, mm. uh, it's priceless because everybody's working for everybody else and you generally know everybody else. There's a lovely positive atmosphere to work in it. And it's helpful to the out for the product that actually comes out at the end of the day. And you can't have that. If you're outsourcing your programs to different companies, uh, different independent companies, around the region and beyond there's no way everybody's going to know each other and you it, it missed out a lot in my view carlton just they weren't up to the standard of terms i would say that wouldn't i but i, I just think the whole thing is a, is a very you know it's a very dark day for for british television yes i think so yes but for you then life went on and this is where i first saw you really you were the face of saturday tea times on itn and this is an interesting era for ITV in general, particularly on Saturday afternoons, because World of Sport had long since ended. That ended in um, the autumn of 1985. But then from 1985 till um, the end of the 91-92 football season, results service used to come on air at 4.40 on a Saturday afternoon with air, generally presented by Elton Wellsby, who might even be listening to this podcast. I'm in touch with Elton. And um, that would be... They particularly relied on independent local radio reporters to feed in reports of matches and they'd have a full classified check with Bob Colston. And that continued right the way up until the end of the 91-92 season. And then a decision was made to get rid of results service and incorporate the sports roundup on the ITN Tea Time News Bulletin. So typically that would mean either Nicholas Owen or Carol Barnes would be alongside yourself. And I imagine putting that together during the course of a Saturday afternoon with all these results coming in, reports coming in, footage coming in, will it come in or won't it come in? Because technology then wasn't as instant as it is now, not by a long way. I imagine working on that would have been quite intense on a Saturday afternoon. 
it was intense, Marcus, but I tell you, I loved every second of it. It was such fun because we actually went on air before the games had finished. Mm. So you didn't know what was going to happen. And of course, in terms of league tables, you were reliant on this uh, technology that always failed you. So I, I had to go in there with uh, bits of paper and, and you know, trying to work out what this meant in terms of who was top of the table and what have you. And I loved every second. And uh, it, because I was a sports fan, I love football. And I would have been interested anyway as to what was happening on a Saturday afternoon at full time what mm. does this mean to them how did they get on and so on I was actually just speaking it but delivering it to, to the nation as, as a fan as well as a broadcaster and I enjoyed it it, it was tremendous fun mm. and the lovely Bob Belston who was a real pro because uh, he had to, to read his scores when all mayhem was going on around him and he just it just carried on regardless mm. um, I would say the VT80 machine that I mentioned earlier it went down at least three times a month so I mean <laughs> you were always always on the edge as, as to what was happening and then we tried a period of going to uh, commercial radio reporters at grounds and again there was a bit of a union dispute so I'd say now we're going over to uh, to Marcus at White Hart Lane uh, to, right, right, what, what happened Marcus um, how did Spurs win what were they like or, or whatever the link you know mm. you came up and then there was a pause <laughs> somebody hadn't somebody hadn't switched it because of this union dispute oh. so it was left to you Oh, well, we can't, we can't reach Marcus at the moment at White House Lane, but I can tell you Spurs beat Arsenal by three goals to one and the goals were scored by Ian Rush, oh, not Ian Rush, Ian Wright and so on and so on. So, so yeah. you had to be on the edge of your seat all the time and I loved it. And you know, for a sports fan, for a football fan, to be in that position at that time was just heaven. I mean, I loved it. I loved it, 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 would, it would have been tremendous because it's one of those things, no matter how much you prepare and no matter how well prepared, things are going to go wrong, things are going to change, as you've already alluded to, if there were news items beforehand that had to be extended, you'd have to cut back what you had to say if they were running short you'd have to extend what you were planning to say and think about who was there you know Nicholas Owen, Carol Barnes, John Suchet, Dennis Tui. these were all great pros in their own right. They were it was uh, yeah it was it was a privilege to to work alongside them and um, none of them knew anything about sport of course so you couldn't really have a chat with them if anything was going wrong they, they they would look the other way you know don't bring me into this I've got a I've got a clue <laughs> so it was, it was it was all down to you and um, you know they would literally switch off when they handed over to sport I, I think Dennis knows a bit doesn't he um, yes 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 I only worked with him a few times because he he was mainly. Um, what did he, he was slightly on a different channel at the time, but but mm. but the others really had, had didn't have a great deal of interest in in sport. But the point is, they would leave you alone. They wouldn't they wouldn't <laughs> they wouldn't get involved. They wouldn't yeah. involved. Actually, get on with it. So uh, which made it all the more all the more fun. From the studios of ITN, the news and sport with Carol Barnes and Graham Miller. Good evening. Welcome to the program. The headlines tonight. Sinn Féin confirmed they will rejoin the peace talks on Monday. Kate Winslet en route for the Oscars, who she thinks should get Best Actress. And in sport, England collapsed to the lowest ever test score in Antigua. Now, today's sports news, and with the details, here's Graham Miller. England's hopes of winning the sixth test and levelling the series against the West Indies look to have collapsed along with their batting. England were all out for 127 in their first innings and the West Indies are 79 for no wickets in reply. Peter Staunton reports. Again, you, you had the earpiece to, um, to the gallery and uh, I remember being on, um, I was doing the news channel between two o'clock and six o'clock or something. Hmm. And you come out of the football results and you did all of that and you were coming to the end of your shift and, and bless her, the Queen Mum died. 
Oh now, yeah, two thousand and two. Uh, because I because I was sport. I was never involved in the rehearsals. Because you know, no secret that for obviously all the big names in and around the country, there's always obits ready sadly for when they pass so so that all the news can be up to date so i was never involved in all the um all the rehearsals for the queen mum who, who who'd been dying for a long time mm. <laughs> Bless her. Uh, and suddenly she died on my shift so, so uh, I, I remember vividly a, a producer would ran into the studio and literally dropped a sort of 25 page wad of notes in front of me of what you can and can't do in <laughs> now graham <laughs> let me ask you because i know peter, peter sisson, yeah peter sisson's on the bbc the late peter sisson's now sadly he got into a lot of trouble for wearing a burgundy tie um yes. r- rather than a black one and and he, he explained in his excellent autobiography called uh, when one door closes he explained everything that went on there he admitted that some of the questions he asked weren't his finest hour but the actual tie thing which he got crucified for in the tabloid press a couple of days later on the monday in particular um he said that was actually bbc policy now let me ask you graham what color was your tie that day well, it certainly wasn't black. I mean, that was mm. sort of rule number one. You've got to wear a black tie. But I've just been presenting the sports shift for four hours. So, I mean, I, I didn't have a black tie on me and there was nobody in, in wardrobe to give me a black tie. So I just carried on with whatever tie I was wearing. But we, it, it was a smooth movement from covering sport to, to a royal um, a royal departure. And uh, I had to switch back onto my news days and talk to all sorts of people in a variety mm. of circles. There was a mayhem in the gallery. Nobody knew what was happening next, and you were trying to keep afloat of everything that was going on. And it was <laughs> mm. it was great fun again because it was down to you as frontman to keep the show on the road, and they were sort of following you rather than you being directed, as is the normal case. And uh, I, I was happy to do that. It was just something I enjoyed doing. And you know, they'd say, "Oh, so and so is on the phone. Talk to him," and, and or talk to her, and off you went, and you you just carried on by the, on the seat of your pants. But it was. It, it, it's not a good thing to say it was good fun doing a, a royal funeral but it, but from a you know from a presenting point of view it was the challenge it's, that it's, it's the there. adrenaline rush and that's that's one of the things i i enjoy most about this why i think rainy I, I always will prefer radio to television because i like the spontaneity of it and the way it can suddenly change tack now the same thing can happen on rolling news channels as you've just demonstrated but i'm guessing you know you you were you prepared for an afternoon of sport and you've done everything you possibly could to prepare properly for that and then wallop this thing is landed in front of you just as after you you've been working all afternoon the queen mother has died you're relying on people like who was the royal editor tim Hewitt, would it have been at that time as well i'm guessing he he would have been brought into it and you're just relying on whoever is there that adrenaline rush you've got to get this right and just ask common sense questions really that's quite something in live broadcasting isn't it it is. I mean, you say bring in the um, bring in the senior reporters. They were on the golf course or down by the beach. They weren't yeah. around. It was yeah. Saturday afternoon. They were they were non-contactable. So you had to rely on whatever, whoever, and whatever was around. And I was talking to various uh, aging actors who'd been friendly with the Queen Mum, and I, I was asking them questions, and nothing was coming back. And I could hear the director of Mayor saying, "Oh, sorry, we understand he's deaf." <laughs> you're trying to conduct an interview down the phone line with everybody screaming and shouting with a poor guy who, who, who's deaf but yeah I, did the audience ever know I, I don't suppose they did because of the drama and the uh, you know the, the solemnity of the whole thing I don't suppose anybody really uh, got annoyed by it but from a presenting point of view it was it was the mortgage tube crash all over again it's something that uh, that keeps you going and it's something that you as a journalist as a reporter as a presenter it's you know these are the days you 
you want. Um, yeah. Because that's the base, they, it, it, it tests you and it stretches your ability and you, you get to see, you know, are, are you made for this? And, you know, you pulled it off. You pulled it off a number of times in your career in that sense. <laughs> but you, I, I remember there was, there's a great Twitter feed of somebody who posts old edition of the, um, the radio times and the TV times. And there was an edition of the TV times from around about 1993, 94. And it said ITV evening news, Graham Miller on sport, followed by bullseye with Jim Bowen the guest dart player throwing for charity, Graham Miller. And it was Graham ah, Miller yes. by Graham Miller. I think I pointed that out to you on Twitter at the time. It, yes. appeared, it appeared on Twitter some months ago. But uh, yeah, that made me laugh, that particular thing. But it wasn't me, of course. There was an oh, I know. I know. English international dart player called <laughs> um, uh, Graham Miller. And we used to, when I was at Thames, I used to interview him a lot because he was in his prime when I was at Thames. And it was really quite weird. Yes, it, mm. it was very strange. Very strange. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and your, your role at ITN went beyond, well beyond Saturday afternoon sport because you covered World Cups, you covered Olympics. And you stayed with, with ITN throughout the 1990s. But... Towards the end of the 90s into the early 2000s, the Channel 5 factor came in and there was a change of emphasis in how news was presented. And Saturday afternoons, more often than not, as time went on, people like Felicity Barr and Gary Orris started presenting the sports bulletins on the Tea Time Bulletin. But you stayed with ITN for a good few years longer, you, but then you weren't chosen to cover the 2002 World Cup in Japan and South Korea. ITN sent Mark Austin. You, as you say, you presented shifts on the ITV News Channel. But towards the end of 2002, there was a, a bidding war to retain the ITV News contract, and ITN held on to it. They fought off a bid from Sky News, but at a vastly reduced price, the amount of money they were receiving from ITV for doing the news was cut, and there were 75 job losses. Towards the end of 2002, you sensed it was time to move on. Well, yes, I did. And it was uh, um, a very difficult time again, because as you say, ITN had to reduce the budget considerably and covering news is expensive, um, particularly around the world. And we, we just couldn't do it anymore. And a new, new editor came in and his brief was to save money, get rid of staff. And there was a cull. And his idea was, I mean, it's logical on paper. His, his idea at the time was, if a story is worth covering on News at 10, a good reporter can cover it. So whether it's new, uh, sport or business or medical or whatever it happens to be, mm. uh, a good reporter can cover it. So we don't need specialist reporters. We can get rid of the uh, medical correspondent, get rid of the business correspondent, get rid of the sports correspondent, who, who was me, and we can save ourselves a lot of money. So uh, I, I was one of those who was who was culled, unfortunately. Um, and uh, so my ITN days were gone. It was quite uh, brutal, quite ruthless. I think anybody at the time will, will, will tell you that. And, and then it continues. I mean, that, but, that's but, show business, but, I suppose. But, but, but the, lo the logic behind that, though, saying we don't need specialist correspondence is something I disagree with, because you take, for example, now where we are in this day and age, some of the very best journalism I've seen in the last few weeks is Steve Scott for ITV News, exposing what's gone on in British gymnastics with um, institutional abuse, it seems to be, and, 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 to me, and, and this, he's been exposing this night after night um, on News at 10, I think last week or the week before, we had about three nights in a row of Steve's reports. Now, Steve is a very good journalist who happens to specialize in sport. And when you're listening, when there's, you know, the economic crash of 2008, for example, I want somebody with a solid background in economics um, explaining in a palpable way to the, the ordinary viewer what all this means in real terms. And specialist knowledge is a very valuable thing. And I think it, it's a shame that they discarded with that so quickly. And also, 
yes, I'm a, I'm a great believer you have to encourage and bring through young talent, but I think they were a little bit too brutal in getting rid of the likes of Carol Barnes and sidelining Nicholas Owen and people like that. I think they were far too harsh the way they did that round about that era. But this was the beginning, really, late 2002, wasn't it, of the cutbacks in news and it having to be done much more cheaply than in the past. Yes, absolutely. And inevitably, two or three years later, the specialists came back. But yes, the whole thing was, you weren't covering news on the strength of a story, you were covering news on the cost of uh, news gathering it. I mean, I remember coming in on several mornings, and at the time, there was just one satellite dish we used to used to transmit stories via little satellite dish from wherever you were back to back to you know ITN house to to go out to the nation and I came in of a morning with a story or a suggested story and they say no 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 um as you know we're sharing the um the satellite dish with uh, TBS today the company who covers the south of England uh, they've got the dish down in Southampton so can you find a story in Southampton and that's where you're going so mm. so news gathering had turned around 360 degrees it wasn't the strength of the story it was where the technology was in order to cover it and feed it back and to make use financial good use um, of, of, the, of the facilities of the, uh, the infrastructure now that that's the wrong way to go in my book always will be you know the news, news should stand on its own on its own value and it shouldn't only appear because you've got the technology in the right place but uh, but, but this, this is part of the problem was it because obviously what began as the ITN news channel was later rebranded the ITV news channel but they didn't seem to be committed to it in terms of resources. And I sensed that as a student at the time, flicking between that and Sky News and the BBC News Channel. In terms of resources, they never committed to it in the way they needed to, to make it a, a long-term success, did they? No, they didn't. And most of the country knew their regions. If you lived in Manchester, you knew you were Granada. If you lived in Norwich, you knew you were Anglia. And that's, in terms of branding, that is priceless. You couldn't afford to actually start branding your TV companies like that. But everybody had grown up with it and knew where they were. And suddenly, um, the powers that be decided to scrap all of that and call it ITV. You know, ITV whatever and in my view that was a huge mistake you lost so much value and so much uh, connection I mean particularly in the regions um, certainly in my time you were a valued member of the household you know ITV in the regions um, was huge everybody would watch and you became quite a character in those regions you know you're, part, you're seen as part of the family in many ways and I often remember um, I'd left HTV uh, Bristol and, and went to London and I was covering football for the Sunday Mirror and I covered a match down at Swindon. So I hadn't been in the West Country working for about, I don't know, three years. And I walked through the car park of um, Swindon Town Football Club and a chap came up to me and he said, Ira Graham, where have you been on holiday? You know, as far as, as, far as, it, as far as he was concerned, I was still at HTV. And that, that to me is a priceless thing that uh, has been thrown away, which is a huge shame. Huge well, but shame. you're correct because, you know, you think about it now, even in this day and age, Tyne Tees, for example, Mike Neville, Granada, Bob Greaves, um, Tony yeah, Wilson, yeah. Central, um, Bob Warman, uh, whether it's TVS, Meridian, Fred Dinage, people associate these names with their region. And ITV, particularly their actions in the early 2000s, when you ended up with two companies, Granada and Carlton, effectively owning all the regions, and then they eventually merged to create ITV PLC. Yes, you had to move with the times, I suppose, you in the multi-channel era, but the baby was thrown out with the bathwater, so to speak. And 
they tried doing news on the cheap and they got rid of value brands because like the, the name Granada, you hear that and you go to Manchester and you used to see in the, the city centre as, you, as you, your train pulled in the Granada skyline with those big red letters on top of their building, Granada Television. Yeah, yeah. And you associate Granada with World in Action and high level drama and Coronation Street and Granada Reports had a very strong following in the Northwest. To throw all that away, I think was a terrible mistake. And in, in terms of throwing those brands away, something important was lost. And I don't think we've ever really got that back. No, I, th I think you're absolutely right. And uh, it, it's a great shame. And I think a lot of people now real, realize that. But of course, you, you, can't, you can't, put, uh, can't put the pieces back, back together again. I mean, at ITN, when I was doing those Saturday night shifts, uh, granted, we, we followed the variety show and we preceded the Saturday night film. But those ITN bulletins on a Saturday night, we were getting audience figures of 9, 10 million. Can you believe it? 9, 10 million just for a news program. Yeah. And nowadays, they get 1 million, they, they, they break open the champagne. All right, there are more channels now. Things have changed. I accept all that. But that's how much people um, watched and relied upon uh, the news from a reliable source with characters and reporters they knew. And I think mm -hmm. that a lot of that has gone now. People like to know who they're watching. People like to get used to the people who pop up in their living rooms night after night after night because that's how it works and if there's a, there's a whole range of new people every time they can't relate to that and i think news broadcasting suffers as a result that that's correct and I, i've got nothing against anyone who is working in that nowadays there's some terrific people there but their, their shelf life on screen is very often quite short and people who were on the screen a lot 10 15 years ago have just seemed to have vanished into other roles now and they, they don't have that same connection of people of previous eras for the reasons you outline. Life is so much more fragmented. Television is much, so much more fragmented. We are all doing our own thing, watching Netflix or Amazon Prime, or we've got access to several hundred channels. Times have changed in an absolutely enormous way. Um, so life beyond 2002, you set up your own company, but we'll talk about more, more about that in a second. And, but you didn't disappear. You were still broadcasting. You worked as a reporter on Gillette Soccer Saturday. I remember you on there. And I think even before that stage, when you were still at ITN, you did do some work, didn't you, for the London News Network, which was the amalgamated seven-day-a-week news service for Carlton and LWT. Um, you, you were involved in that for a period, weren't you? Well, yes, I was. When I, when, you know, I went freelance again, and obviously as a freelance, you work for, <laughs> work for everybody. Uh, so, um, yeah, I was doing pretty much the same kind of work, but for different, different organisations. Um, but it, from my point of view, because you weren't there all the time, it, as we were talking about earlier, it never had that same kind of camaraderie for me as working in some of the companies I had done down the years. But yes, I, I sort of, um, I did that for a while, but then I thought, I'd, I'd come to a point and I thought, well, I've done it all. You know, I've, I've been, I've had a privileged career in front of screen, as you mentioned, like, you know, you name it, Olympic Games, World Cups, um, and so on and so forth. So I set up my own company after that and carried on covering stories for different broadcasters. I, I worked for the Olympic Broadcasting Service, which uh, covers mm. all the Olympic Games. I worked for them for 10 years or, or, or whatever it is. Um, but I also ran my own company, just sort of helping people with their presentation skills. We produce videos and do general public relations work and so on, which is ongoing now. And I thoroughly enjoy it. It's the same kind of work I've always done, but A, you're working for yourself and B, you've got a whole range of different people who you're connected with and working. And, it, and it, you know, I find that uh, just as exciting as, as ever. I love what I do. I always have done. And uh, even though I'm 109, I, I carry <laughs> on. 
Well, because I think now it wasn't that many years ago that you were reading sports bulletins on Sky News and I think on occasion Sky Sports News and you were a reporter yes. for Gillette Soccer Saturday. You've done stuff for CNN, for Today FM in Ireland and you are Royal Television Society Sports Presenter of the Year. You've won that twice. So it's quite an illustrious career. Do you miss day-to-day broadcasting? Uh, yes, I do. In, in as much as I've done it for so long, um, uh, you, you do get out of, you know, that's what I enjoy doing. That's why I went into the business. That's, that's what really uh, got me involved. So I miss that, um, that daily broadcasting. But I, still, I find the work I'm doing now just as satisfying uh, mm. and just enjoyable. And it's taken me into new areas where I've had to learn new tricks of the trade, new ways of doing things. And technology now has just changed beyond belief. And we used to go abroad for ITM, for example, we'd carry crates and crates and crates of, of kit. Nowadays, you can do it on your mobile phone and it's better quality. Mm-hmm. So you can do so much more now than you used to. You don't need the satellite truck, you can just send an email. And technology is remarkable and it's getting better and better. And whenever we do get 5G, and a bit controversial, whenever we do get 5G, it'll become even easier uh, mm-hmm. to transmit from, from wherever you are. So there's a tremendous future out there and I'm, you know, I'm eager to be part of it and, and get involved in it and um, happy to, to carry on what I'm doing. I mean, what tended to happen was that um, programme budgets were slashed and the staff were being slashed, but programmes still wanted certain things covered. So my company would go and cover those events on behalf of the organiser, and then we'd feed the footage to the different broadcasters who wanted the story. Mm. So they would still get their footage, they would still get the story they wanted without committing their own crew, without it costing them any money out of their budget, and we'd be paid by the, uh, by the promoter of the event. So there was a lot of that going on, and it still does, but it's, it's that type of, type of work now. You know, we're always going to produce stuff that's A, broadcast quality, and B, follows all the rules and regulations. So, you know, thankfully I, I have that. People know that if they're going to get something from me, it's going to be of the right standard because uh, I'm very old fashioned in terms of quality and I scream and shout at the screen sometimes. When I say <laughs> well, I, I, even, even, I, even I do that at 36 years of age. <laughs> me, but, so th- this business involved now, Media View, if I pronounced that correctly? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. Because I, I've, looked at, I've looked at your website and you, you're partners with a variety of businesses, sports federations, individuals, advising them on media strategy. I think the advice you've given, uh, I mean, I'm a, I'm a former sports reporter for local television here in Cardiff, the former City TV channel. And I, the, I wish I'd read the five points you got for people adapting from radio to television. I wish I'd read that seven, eight years ago when I, I had made that adjustment. But your client list includes executives at Manchester United, the banking industry, a range of individuals. Um, there's documentary program making services uh, branched out into PR. But there's that thing that the one bit of advice that jumped out for me is that I'd say I'll, I'll always prefer radio because you can do great radio in your pajamas. And indeed, I have done great radio in my pajamas. But <laughs> in TV, the semiotics are that much more important. And the importance of slowing down a little bit when you're talking to camera compared to how you might do on a radio microphone is pretty mm. important. And that's something, I mean, I learned it eventually. But when I first started in television, I didn't have that. But there, there's five, I would say on the website, there's five very basic points that anyone can learn over time. Now, the screen happens to like some people a lot more than it likes others. But these are things, very basic advice people can learn for free on your website right now. Yes, it's all there. And um, particularly now with all the Zoom meetings that people are doing, um, I, I'm suddenly helping people 
become better performance uh, to camera on these uh, virtual meetings because people are terrified of the camera. They're terrified of so many things they're not used to. And people say to me, well, I hate what I look like and I hate what I sound like. And I have to say to them, well, in all honesty, that's how your clients see you and hear you anyway. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what's going on in your head? But there are, there are a number of do's and don'ts that you can just follow to help you be a better presenter on Zoom or any of the other, uh, you know, um, platforms there are now to do these meetings make sure you look at the camera i mean how many times on network television have we seen up people's noses and chins because they're simply yeah. not looking at the camera at the right level simple basic stuff but people don't understand it or don't get it you know they, they don't realize it so i'm working with a lot of people just explaining these basic things to do uh, and how to become better at what they're doing because people always say to me oh, well so and so they've got the gift of the gab or it's all right for them but presentation skills or public speaking call it what you will it's not a gift it's a skill and like any skill as you well know marcus the more you do the better you become the more you mm. practice the easier you, easier it becomes the better you are at it so it's, it's encouraging people to practice watch what they do listen to what they do follow the do's and don'ts and then they can improve and actually enjoy what they're doing on this uh, you know in, in these very strange times we're all doing things we never used to do or couldn't imagine us doing we're doing it on a regular basis so if you follow the rules follow the regulations don't do it anything silly you'll, you'll be good at it and I, I would say you know it does come with practice whether it's radio or television and be hard on yourself but don't be too hard on yourself because at the end of the day everyone started somewhere nobody really likes looking back at their very early work and it's all a little bit cringy when we think oh I wish I'd known then what I know now and you know I, I listen back to my early radio performances you know I, I've become that much more comfortable in my own skin so to speak and I think we, there's an element of that with all of us but you can improve everybody and again the, the habit in television now obviously the money in television isn't what it used to be and the shelf life of presenters and reporters isn't what it used to be and yeah, we, you know, we, we, I don't have to name names here by any means. I don't want to embarrass anyone in particular, but you put the television on sometimes and you think this is a very attractive woman here, but is she here for her journalistic skills or her looks? Do you think the balance has tilted a little bit the wrong way? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, yes, I do. I don't. Uh, for me, it's the journalism that matters. Obviously, you have to look presentable. Don't get me wrong. And, um, you know, you you dress for the part don't you some of the reporting some of the clothes i've seen reporters wearing i find ridiculous you know mm. you, you wouldn't see your mother-in-law on a sunday afternoon wearing a jeans and a, a t-shirt you just wouldn't do it mm. maybe you would but you take my point you take my point you you know it's it's horses for courses you, sh you should literally dress the part and mm. if somebody's good enough then that's good that's good enough for me you shouldn't get the job because you're this or you're that you know according mm. to whatever is popular at the time i think that's quite important but the pendulum is swinging pendulum always swings and at the moment in my view it's going in the wrong direction and what i hate to see um is affiliations i mentioned earlier that when i was a full-time sports reporter i would never let on that i was a luton town fan and I used to get complaints from the, you know, from Spurs or from Arsenal that I favoured the other team, so I thought I must be doing something right. Um, but I would never let on personal um, uh, you know, politics or, or favours. And yet now I see presenters who are wearing badges um, promoting this or promoting that. I mean, Hugh Edwards wouldn't say, "Welcome to News at Ten, vote." Labour, would he? I mean, well, well Hugh, Hugh Edwards is an interesting oh. case in point. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Hugh Edwards. He wouldn't say, he wouldn't go on there and say vote Labour, but you look at him on social media, he seems to have been given a free pass to say what he likes in terms of Welsh language provision because mm. both his parents were senior figures in Plaid Cymru 
And he's he, the way he, you know he attacked the Guardian columnist Zoe Williams earlier this year, and on, on issues related because it is say both his parents were senior Welsh nationalists. They would have known Saunders Lewis and Gwynvor Evans and people like that. Hugh Edwards has been given a bit of a free pass on the Welsh language, and no one at the BBC has stood up to him on that. And I also think Hugh Edwards, not just on the Welsh language, on other issues as well, but certain other BBC reporters, their behaviour on Twitter, I think, hang on, you're going dangerously close to the edge here in terms of impartiality. And I think back also to Emily Maitlis on Newsnight, and there's a woman who some of her dress sense has been a bit iffy over the years, should we say, the, the way she's, she's appeared on there. But do you remember it was a matter of weeks ago now, I think uh, when the height of the pandemic, pandemic when she, um, she was effectively given a three-minute monologue to give us her take on it. And yes. there's this crossover between um, facts and analysis, which is what I expect from an impartial news programme, to a sort of running commentary with somebody with a perspective and an agenda. And I think particularly when you're in a publicly funded organisation, that is very dangerous. I couldn't agree with you more. And the BBC, I sometimes think, forgets what it's there to do. It wasn't her place to say that. It certainly wasn't a programme to say it in. And, um, I, well, to me, she should have been severely reprimanded, if, if not sacked. I mean, I don't understand how, what goes on um, Fred Truman on Test Match Special, don't I? I can't understand what's going on out there. Um, but it, it is quite odd nowadays, all driven by social media, of course. But to me, social media is great. It's important. It's, it, it, and it's only going to get bigger. But there are restrictions. And you just can't say, in my book, some of the things that these reporters and others are saying. It's not the place for them to do it. They really should be impartial, as I was talking about earlier, in terms of their own preferences. I, they, they shouldn't be allowed to do it, and they shouldn't really want to do it, because in my view, it, it, it affects their impartiality. And if people don't respect their impartiality and believe they're reporting from an agenda, then we've got problems. And that seems to be growing now, doesn't it, amongst so many people. They believe so-and-so has an agenda, the BBC has an agenda, this, this that and the other. And uh, the BBC are just piling in. I mean, I think they're making tremendous mistakes. They're spending £6 million on diversity now, where if you look at the figures, the BBC are actually doing quite well. I was reading mm. a report the other day which suggested 52% of on-screen staff is female. Uh, their BAME representation is way above what the proportion is in, in the country. So they're actually ticking all the right boxes. They're doing a very good job and good mm. luck to them and absolutely correctly <laughs> they're, they're working in an absolutely right way but then they're spending six billion pounds on more diversity while they we've got the issue with the uh, the licenses for the over 75 which comes in in just a couple of weeks time i, I just think they've got some of these big decisions wrong in my humble opinion well i i think you're absolutely spot on because i think this is diversity disappearing up its own backside in many ways what you're seeing at the bbc at the moment and uh, Andrew Marr, he gave a lecture about 14 years ago, and he, he, I haven't got the exact quote in front of me, but he said, the BBC is essentially a goldfish bowl. Um, a lot of the staff are cut from the same cloth. It's not so much a party political bias, but it's a culturally liberal bias. Um, it's very urban. It doesn't have much understanding of rural issues. And it's, it's all very much the sort of London elitist outlook. And they, there is a disconnect between the BBC and the audience it serves, I think. And people, are, uh, you know, people can see through all this, um, this diversity agenda here. It shouldn't be a box-ticking exercise. True diversity is the best people in the best jobs on merit. That's what diversity should ideally mean in the real world. And sadly, it doesn't mean that. And I, I'm not saying it's a perfect situation by any means, but the BBC is going to absurd lengths with this diversity and political correctness agenda. Did you see that video a few weeks ago? Um, 
that the BBC sounds put up, how can white women stop being Karens? Did you yes. see that? Uh, now, to, to me, how on earth did that ever get on that website at all? <laughs> no one at the BBC, I, I'd say for a minute, hold on, this is ridiculous. This is absurd. Mm. It's offensive to people called Karen for a start. And there, there are many thousands of people called Karen in this country. And it, it, it's just nonsense. It, it's, what was it? Amelia and Lottie, I think the two women were called in that video. And they were saying, how can white being stop me and Karen? Have they got any idea just how stupid this sounds to the vast majority of people? out there in the real world. And that sort of thing bothers me. But going back to what you're saying about Emily Maitlis, I think she crossed another line about a year ago when James O'Brien, the LBC presenter, who I put it politely, have had my differences with, um, she wrote the foreword to his book, How to Be Right. Now, James O'Brien has a very specific worldview, if you like. He is the sort of Islington man, um, hipster, middle-class, Remainer, that, that's his worldview. And you listen to LBC at 10 o'clock in the morning, you know that's what you're going to get. But for Emily Maitlis to write the foreword and to say what a wonderful book it was, and I think I might be right in saying he returned the favor when she published her book. I might be right about that. But I think a dangerous line was crossed there because James O'Brien is a partisan person. Indeed, he was removed from Newsnight as a cover presenter because he's partisan. I think Emily Maitlis crossed a dangerous line there. Yes, I, I agree with you. We're agreeing with each other here, here this afternoon. But it, things have changed swiftly um, you know, in front of our very eyes. I mean, when I was doing sport for ITV, for example, I could never work for the BBC. You know, it was mm. just, you wouldn't do that. Nowadays, you've got presenters that crisscross with BT Sport and others. And the whole point was, if people switched on and saw you on there, they'd know what they were watching. They were watching HTV Cardiff or something. But mm. nowadays, you see familiar faces popping up all over the place and you don't know what you're watching and the whole the whole the rule book has been torn up and there is no rule book anymore and and i think that goes very much towards what you what you were just saying uh, and i think it's a detrimental move i, I think it's it's bad policy uh, and i think it, i think program output suffers and i think the audience suffers too because uh, because of all this interchanging and, and, and lack of respect for for the audience, really, because I don't, I don't, I don't care what Emily Maitlis thinks about this no. or the other. I don't think that's her job. Her mm. job is to be the conduit to get the information out from the people she's interviewing. I, I really have no interest in her personal politics whatsoever. And I think that, that should be the, the main criteria. But call me old-fashioned. You're old-fashioned. Well, I well think... there was a very good piece in the, uh, the Times the other day by Roger Mosey, the former senior figure at BBC Sport, who's now an academic, and he said, the BBC has got to make a decision. Is it going to commit itself to impartial journalism and being even-handed? Or, or does it see itself in this sort of campaigning role with journalists pursuing an agenda? And obviously, well, the answer for you and I, I mean, I'm, I'm 36, but I've got old-fashioned values, I suppose, is that they should absolutely be impartial because it's publicly funded by uh, pain of imprisonment if you want to watch television and don't pay for a license fee. So they have a duty to be impartial. But we have seen it, them drift over into this sort of left-leaning campaigning journalism with their endorsement of, well, various causes like the whole Black Lives Matter thing. Now, you'll know through speaking to Jeremy Jacobs and my friend Johnny Gould has been very big on this, saying, well, actually, the Black Lives Matter charity has, and it says this on its own website, has quite a, 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 a pseudo-Marxist agenda, if you like, to abolish the police. It's very anti-Israel. This is not something the BBC should be actively endorsing. Now, say no to racism or, or the, the long-standing kick-it-out campaign against racism in football. Yes, all right-thinking people would agree that racism has no place in football. But Black Lives Matter is a charity with a political agenda. 
They won't even tell us who their directors are. This is not something that media organisations should be actively endorsing, in my view. I agree with you, again. Um, for example, Black Lives Matter, of course they do it. Every, everybody would, would stick up for that. But their politics is, well, I, I don't agree with the politics of, of Black Lives Matter at all. Uh, getting rid of capitalism, defunding the police, boycott Israel. I mean, what's it got to do with Black Lives Matter? I think it's, mm. it's grim. And the way we see them taking the knee at football matches, and I was always under the impression that footballers would be booked if they showed a political statement on their vest under their shirt, and then suddenly they were running around with Black Lives Matter on, on their shirts. I don't see how that's compatible. Mm. And I remember a few years ago, Moeen Ali was, um, was fined and banned for wearing a, a wristband, which had a political statement on it. And now the cricketers are running around with Black Lives Matter. I mean, mm. nobody objects to Black Lives Matter, but I just think it's the wrong use of the slogan, bearing in mind the political consequences can you split them can you split the you know the, the message from the politics well personally I don't think so perhaps others do but if you look at Sky Sports News now everywhere you look it's Black Lives Matter and, and this that and the other Absolutely right. But are they overlooking the, um, the political consequences of the movement? Well, well here's, here's the way I see it, Graham. Black lives do matter, but with a small b, a small l and a small m. Mm. Black lives matter, but I don't endorse the charity, which is why I use the small letters. Now, if you said, if I, like, if I was thinking about this watching football over a match of leagues, if I was presenting the coverage on Sky, I wouldn't want the Black Lives Matter logo on my shirt for the reasons you and I have already said. I would be more than willing to wear a kick it out badge because I, I detest and abhor racism with every bone in my body. So I, I would wear that. But again, I was watching even the World Match Play Darts, which is taking place this week. Now, Nigel Pearson has just taken over from Dave Clark as the main presenter of Sky's Darts coverage. Even on his shirt, he had the Black Lives Matter logo. I would point blank to refuse to wear that. Now, would that have consequences for my career if I was in that position? I suspect it probably would. But you just imagine, Graham, if you were the one footballer playing in the Premier League or the Championship who said, you know what, I don't endorse this anarchist agenda, defund the police and anti-Israel and everything else. I don't endorse that. And therefore, I won't be taking a knee because it's sort of compulsory and I won't be getting involved in this. I'll wear the kick it out badge like I wear once a year anyway, and it's been around for 25 years. You imagine how that footballer would be treated if he stood up straight while others were taking the knee. Would he be forced out the club? Would he be hounded on social media? Would there be calls for him to be sacked and never employed by a football club ever again as though he committed a serious criminal offence? I think in this day and age, they probably would. Yes, yes, they probably would. And it is now a Sky Directive. If you appear front of camera, you are not allowed to wear a tie. That's, that's, uh, that's out. You can't wear a tie. Uh, you must look casual. And you have to wear these uh, slogans and logos at the moment. It's a directive. And if you don't like to do it, then you won't get on air. It's as straightforward as that. So I've heard from colleagues and others. And I think that's, uh, that's not right. I think it's a mistake. I think they'll come to regret it. But that's the policy they're covering at the moment. I mean, there, are, there have been footballers down the years. I'm trying to think of the name of the, um, uh, the Irish player who, who um, always objects to the anthem. I, I can't remember his It's name not, not uh, Stephen Ireland. It's the other one at Manchester City, isn't it? The yes, one that, I can't. Yeah. yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. <laughs> senior moment i can't remember his name yeah, i'm having but, one as well yeah so you are sort of stuck out on a limb if you don't conform but uh, it's good that some of the independent presenters james mclean isn't it james mclean 
that's yeah. the one. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Well done. Well remembered. Um, the people like Matt Letizia, he's refused to wear the badge and so on, which, uh, you know, good for him. He's, he's sticking up for his rights. But he doesn't got to worry about his future so much. He's only a sort of Saturday afternoon um, freelance um, presenter so it's it's not as important to him as perhaps others but it's very difficult if you're especially if you're up and coming and you're told to wear something or not mm. wear something then then you have to go along with it if you want to do the job in my view as in your view i think it's a mistake but that's where we are at the moment and uh, it's disappointing put it that I, way I, I i find it extremely worrying that there's this sort of compulsory nature of it that's what really concerns me about it because i i would point blank refuse to wear the black lives matter logo on my clothing if i was on television and I would face the consequences for that because I feel very strongly about it. Um, but it, it, when things become compulsory in this way, they lose meaning anyway because people are wearing it out of fear and taking the knee out of fear rather than because they actually want to. So that kind of waters down the purpose of it anyway. Um, final question for you then. Advice for newcomers, those breaking into the industry now. Now, as we have demonstrated, particularly in the early part of our discussion, Local radio, whether it's BBC local radio or local commercial radio in particular, has changed to such an extent, local commercial radio no longer does sport for the most part. There's very, very few examples left, particularly with the, the Bauer buying out various like Swansea Sound when I appeared until very recently. They've now got rid of sport. I expect Signaling Stoke is one of the last ones. They're going to get rid of sport soon as well, I gather. There are very few local commercial stations still doing sport. It's gradually been in decline for about 20 years now, but we are where we are. BBC Local Radio, we've heard all the reports in recent weeks about the cutbacks there. If you're on a double-header breakfast program, you're going to be cut back to one presenter. For people coming through now wanting to learn their trade, whether it's in news or whether it's in sports commentary, yes, there are all sorts of academic courses you can go on, and I'm sure you can give them good training through your company if they want it. But actually getting the breakthroughs, okay, there are opportunities to work behind the scenes on Sky Sports News if you want to go down that road in a BT Sport, particularly if you are able to live and work in London. And for a lot of people, that's out of reach because it's simply unaffordable. What advice would you be be giving to young people today looking to break through? Well, I'm a guest, occasional guest lecturer at the local university here, the University of Bedfordshire, and they have a massive media department with state-of-the-art kit. And it worries me and it frightens me. They have so many graduates each year and I worry what kind of jobs they, they will get into because, as you say, the, the opportunities are receding. Uh, and they write to me and they contact me and they say, have I got any work for them? Well, the way my business works is I, I don't have the opportunity to, to train people up. I need people who are ready to go, uh, oven ready, as our prime minister would say. But one of the things I, I say to them in return, well, what have you done during your university days? Or what have you done since you left school? Have you started a regular blog? Have you started a podcast like this? Have you done some video work that are, is very easy to do now on, online? And most of them say, well, no, not really. And that to me is a wasted opportunity because although the number of jobs is receding, the opportunities to get you out there is so much more nowadays and so much easier to actually get, get yourself a following if you... If, if you do it well and you, you speak from the heart, whatever it happens to be, if you do it well, you will get a following. You will become a name in, in, in certain areas and that will help you find the kind of niche that you're looking for. And everybody is mm. trying to, to search for this niche. So I would encourage people not to go for the traditional jobs because there are so few, but to actually start today, this moment, regularly blogging, getting to do a podcast, interviewing people in and around wherever you are. What do they do? So you get some experience, you get some techniques, you get some exposure in that way and stick it online and just keep working at it that way. And mm -hmm. I think in time, if you have that commitment, because whatever area you come from, 
whatever age you come from, if you have that determination, if you have that drive, if you have that skin like a rhino, you will eventually get where you want to go. And that's a bit of a cliche, but in my view, it's true. I look back on the various people I've been working with in and around for all these years, and we all have a very similar determination to get there, despite the setbacks. And believe you me, there are so many setbacks. There are so many people who say no. And you've got to overcome that. You've just got to have that ambition, keep going, find the confidence to, to, to keep it up, and, and you'll get there. But mm. there's so many, so many chances now to do what certainly possibly you couldn't do. So I certainly couldn't do in my youth, in my younger days, because the, you know, the, the infrastructure wasn't there. So there's no excuse. If they want to do it, there is a means, there is a way, and they'll get there if, if they really push for it. Well, I think what you're saying is absolutely correct. You've got to help yourself a little bit. I mean, even when I was at university, my final year, 2004, 2005, I was head of news at my student radio station. Not only was that news, that was sport as well. And I had a half hour program me and my team would put together each evening, plus a recorded bulletin in the mornings. I built that up from there. And then I handed over to my successor after a year when I graduated. And it, it ran for a few more years after that. And then the station went bust, but that was nothing to do with me. I was long gone by then. But so... You know, learn while you're studying, I would say. And also be quite light-footed. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Have a number of different things on the go at any one time. And I think, okay, local newspapers are in decline, quite severely in decline. And perhaps that's not the best route to go down these days in terms of the way so many local newspaper offices now. We just had a round of redundancies announced from Reach PLC, who own a very large number of newspapers, and NewsQuest as well have announced redundancies recently. So perhaps local newspapers aren't the best route to go down these days. But I say to people, look, Take, for example, the former head of news at TVS in the South Coast, a guy called David Morris-Jones, who's now living about a mile and a half away from me in Penarth, in the town of Penarth in South Wales. He has set up the best hyperlocal news site I've ever seen. And David, to this day, I was talking to his daughter about this a while ago, actually, his work ethic is absolutely tremendous. He puts about four articles on there per day, about 250 words each. And his news site gets more hits than the local papers site because people trust it as a local news source. Now, there's a certain level of commitment there. David knows every contact going. And I, I, I don't think he really does retirement, David. He turned 80 a few months ago. He had a period of illness last year, but he's well and truly bounced back. And that is an example. I would say anyone who wants to set up a hyperlocal news site, look at what David Morris-Jones does in the Panath News. He's been a journalist since the 1960s, first at BBC Wales, then at TVS, then he moved back to Wales again after TVS lost the South Coast franchise. And in retirement, so-called retirement, this is what he's doing. So any student wanting to break into journalism, I'd recommend that as a route to go down. Model yourself on David Morris-Jones, set up a hyperlocal blog. Work experience is important in terms of making contacts and gaining a reputation for being reliable and hard work even if you're not the finished article yourself and be light-footed except that you have to put your eggs in a few different baskets I mean a typical week for me I've been working for Clive Everton at snooker scene for nine years I do work for talk sport radio I work for private eye magazine I'm a political analyst at radio Sputnik I, I and I do bits and pieces for others as well so I you know that's quite a diverse portfolio and I, I somehow managed to carve a career in both politics and sport I, I I don't think that would have been possible in previous eras, but I, it seems to work for me at the moment. And having this diverse portfolio and also be prepared to span out into PR and do the sort of work you're doing, Graham. And I would say to people who want to make it in journalism, yes, it is still possible. The money is not what it used to be. And you do have to be sort of quite light-footed in the sense that jobs appear and disappear very quickly. Yes, money shouldn't be the driving factor. It's obviously important, of course it is, but it's that 
drive, it's that demand, it's that desire to let people know what's going on, your inquisitiveness, what actually is happening here. Call people to account. Do you mean that? Why are you saying that? Asking those questions, getting the information, getting it out there. It's a thrill. It's a thrill when you have a story that nobody else has and you're able to tell the world or even a small part of the world all about it. It's a great thrill. That's what journalism is all about. Uh, I still find it fascinating. I still find it enthralling and inspiring. And uh, don't, you know, don't go for the money. Everybody, well, a number of people, they speak to me from the university. They want to be sports reporters. They want to get in front of camera. They want to be Chris Kamara or whatever. That's, you, you can only be yourself. And you, you've an important part to play as yourself because there's nobody else quite like you. So don't try and be anybody you're not. And there are opportunities, as, as, as we've both been saying. And um, people have to be realistic, you know. Mm. Be as light-footed as you've put it is a very good way of, of saying it. Be interested in everything. I mean, I, I didn't set out to be a sports reporter. I just happened to be... I happened to love sport and it worked out that in most newsrooms I worked at, I was the only one who did like sports. So I got to cover the sports stories anyway. But mm. news is the thing, you know, once you've learned the basics of news reporting, you can then pretty much move on to anything and just learn the basics, like building a house. If you build a house without a foundation, guess what? It'll fall down. Learn mm. the basics, learn the trade, and then it gives you a very good, good start to, to move into whatever niche or area that really interests you. And, and I think the, the only one other piece of advice, everything you've said there is spot on. The one other piece of advice, it's perhaps not quite as easy to do this as it used to be, but if you are in a workplace, if you've got a sort of tough cookie boss, and I'm not saying not a bully, I've got no time for bullies, but somebody will firmly tell you, no, you've got this wrong, you need to learn this, that, and the other, get you into good habits when you're still starting out, and that will stay with you for the rest of your career. And for me, it was a certain individual who was very sort of check, check, and check again leave absolutely nothing to chance, make sure that every bit of information you either write or broadcast is spot on. And I think that fact-checking is so, so important. Absolutely. I had uh, the news editor of my program at HTV West was a guy called Ron Evans, absolute genius. Uh, and he instilled in me some well, most, you know, motivations and ideas that I still think about when I'm covering a story. I say, well, how would Ron deal with this? What would he say to me? After all these years, he's still there at the back of my mind talking to me. And you're quite right. I mean, these, these are the foundations, the roots that never change, whatever area you are in. These basics will always remain the same. Follow those and, you, and you'll be able to get the story. You know, who, what, why, when and where. It's so simple that so many people don't do it. Just you know, read, read the books on it. There's loads of books on it. But perhaps most importantly of all, watch and uh, listen. And you can see for yourself what works and what doesn't. And uh, you know, well, I wouldn't do it that way. I'd do it this way. So ask yourself, well, why would I do it this way? Would it benefit me or the viewer in, in a particular way? So constantly question. Don't watch television or listen to the radio or read online or read the newspapers as, a, as an ordinary punter. Read it as a professional. Question it. Query it. Ask questions about it in your head or to others. And really analyze what's going on here to get the best out of it. Um, you know, you're no longer a, a punter. If, that's the, if this is the profession you want to get in, you're not a punter. You are one of the team. So you've got to learn how it's done and why. And you can question that all the time. I continue to make mistakes. <laughs> I continue to try and not make them again. That, that's the way it is. Nothing is perfect. You've got to keep going and keep trying the best and get it as right as you possibly can, following the rules. Social media at the moment, sadly, doesn't follow the rules, doesn't follow the, the legal requirements that uh, traditional broadcasters have, which in my view it will do in time to come. At the moment, it's like the Wild West. It will have to in time to come. But those are the basics you have to know about. 
you know, the libel laws, this, that, and the other. Yeah, the, the, law, the laws of libel and def defamation. I think a lot of people Absolutely. who use social media need to realize that actually the same laws apply to you as apply to everybody else. And yeah, I, I see do. defamatory comments about any, any topic under the sun on social media. And I think the time will come where Twitter in particular has to uh, say, look, we have to have your real name and a profile picture and some verifiable information for contact here because it's just completely out of control now, isn't it? I agree. Um, as I say, these are the Wild West days. It will sort itself out in time because of what's happening. We, we won't stand for it for very much longer, but it isn't going away. It will become far more uh, author, you know, far more controlled uh, for the right reasons. And you're quite right. They have to follow the same rules as the newspapers and other publications. They have to. And they will do in time. I mean, why the authorities don't come down on some of these platforms like a ton of bricks, I, I really don't know. They say they're not broadcasters. They say they're not publishers. But they are it's mm. simple as that that's exactly what they are yeah uh, and, it, it and they, they've, they've lost they've lost control of their own platform in the moderation on twitter you you can report a tweet for unsuitable content or libel or whatever and you sort of got this sort of kangaroo court somewhere in silicon valley in california or whatever who decides what stays and what goes and that that can't be right can it no no it can't be and uh, some of the things that come down they, they've made good decisions but then we all know some of the footage on youtube and elsewhere is appalling and it's still there that's mm. that needs to be addressed it does well graham you've been a fascinating guest and if people are interested in working with you what's the easiest way to contact you well go on the website which is media-vu media-vu.co.uk um, and all the details are on there my twitter is at mevu at mevu and all my phone numbers are there. I'm very old-fashioned. Do you know what? I answer the phone. How about that? So, <laughs> a a rare commodity these days, Graham. It's, but um, it's, yeah, it's, you, you it's retro, retro communication. <laughs> Pick up the phone. It, it feels like that, doesn't it? Well, Graham, you, you've been a great guest. Thank you so much for your time. I hope people have found it interesting and useful. It's been terrific to hear your voice again. And let's catch up again sometime soon. You're very kind. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you very much, Marcus. Graham Miller there. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time.